I really don't know. I'd planned to uh, speak on something different today uh, with you. But uh, this morning as I uh, was asking the Lord about this whole thing, uh, he, he just wouldn't leave me alone about this whole thing that I normally talk to men about. So uh, do you ladies mind if I just kind of aim one at the men for a little bit? And now promise that you won't hit him in the side with your elbow. Just <laughs> leave him alone. He's been in, abused enough. <laughs> Let me say this, men. If your wife elbows you any time during this message, hold up your hand. And, and we'll publicly humiliate her. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I, I can't get away from what Jesus said for us to do uh, he said for us to make disciples of the nations. And I, I don't know why it is we, we try to do everything else and measure our success by how well we do everything else, but we don't really seem to take seriously his command to make disciples of the nations. Now, if you, if you take seriously making a disciple, uh, making a disciple is more than teaching some facts, and it's more than preaching some sermons or having programs or even going to church. Uh, if I understand making a disciple, it means you train somebody to do something. Discipline is in the word. Training is in the word. You, dis you disciple somebody. I've, I've made some disciples of different things. For instance, uh, I like the outdoors. And one of my uh, hobbies and ways of relaxing is fishing and hunting and being outdoors. And so I run into men who've heard me talk about it and they think it'd be fun. And so they say, will you, will you teach me uh, how to do that? In fact, uh, every year at our church, we take our whole staff uh, on a retreat where we go to a hunting lodge and uh, we have no meetings uh, that are of any religious nature. That is, we have no meetings where we sit down and open the Bible and somebody preaches to us. We, we spend the whole three days just being ourselves with each other. And uh, what we found that if you'll quit being religious, Jesus will have a shot. And uh, so this year, we were getting ready, to, getting ready to go. In fact, other churches have found out that we do it, and so now they've asked, can they go? So this last year, we took five different churches and their staffs with us, and uh, we go. And sometimes, you know, the people get all up, uptight, and they'll go, oh. I mean, some of the staff members go, oh, Brother Hall, you just don't understand. We don't have a chance to be with high-level people. And we, we just like some Bible study and some teaching. And well, sorry, you're not going to get it on this trip. Best you'll do is get it to eat breakfast and sit down and talk about whatever and sitting on a bench somewhere out in a field or sitting on your bunk at night wishing somebody would quit snoring. And <laughs> you, uh, you, we, we intentionally design it so that uh, you have to rub lives with one another and you have to talk about whatever's on your heart instead of being r religiously artificial. So anyway, one of the pastors who went with us this year uh, we were out in this field, and I apologize really to those of you who don't believe in killing things. And uh, uh, I'm sorry you have to kill them to eat them, but I, I don't uh, know any other way. And, uh, 
Uh, you know, people say, I just can't believe you'd be so cold-hearted as to just go out there and hunt things. And, you know, I, I just, I'm just harvesting things for my family, and nobody believes that. And I, my daughter used to fuss about it. She'd say, I just can't believe you would kill a deer. And I said, honey, don't you understand that if I don't shoot those old bucks, they'll commit adultery with everything in the forest. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh... I'm, I'm just trying to help holiness in every area. <laughs> anyway, this pastor was out in the field and uh, we were shooting doves. And... You know, and, and oh, by the way, one lady came up and said, I just can't believe you'd shoot the symbol of the Holy Ghost. I said, I'm just trying to be filled with the Spirit. And uh, anyway, it, you have to deal with things when a whole staff of men, because men have competition kind of in them, you know. And, and so we're out in the field, and doves are flying over, and guys are shooting, bam, bam, bam. The doves are just waving and saying, how y'all doing? <laughs> and this one poor guy uh, who had been a quarterback in college and is a pretty competitive guy, he stood over in the corner, and he shot, and he shot, and he shot. And the dove didn't even know he was around, you know, this... <laughs> And so finally, I, I walked over there toward him, and he said, Dudley, disciple me. <laughs> I said, all right. Now, I've been through that. I've been through standing in the field, shooting, 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 not hitting anything. Somebody took me aside and said, let me tell you a few things. Let me tell you how to disciple a hunter. He said, first of all, you've got you've to teach him some stuff. So teaching is a part of disciple making. You've got to know some facts. You know some truths. So I basically went through the stuff to him. You know how to use the gun you got in your hand. Well, pull the trigger. Well, there's some other few things, you know, and how you get it to your shoulder, how you hold it, what, what you look at. You don't aim it, you point it. And, and so I, I went through some basics. And then I said, okay, and when the dove comes over, here's what you do. You follow along, you pass it. And so I, I gave him the, uh, the stuff, and I, and I said, uh, okay. Now, let me ask you, at this point, is he a disciple? No. He's exactly what all of us are at this conference. We'll just sit here and listen to some instructions. You're not a disciple until you can do it. So the next thing, I stood behind him and I said, all right, let's, let me watch you and see you shoot some. And so some came over and he shot and he was shooting way behind him. And I said, no, nope, they're not going to fly backwards. You're going to have to shoot ahead of them. <laughs> so... Uh, so I told him how to gauge his speed and how to get in, get in rhythm with him and how to, how to flow through them and catch up with them passing. So I showed him and uh, so he, he shot, he hit one or two and he was excited. And so I bragged on him and uh, told him he's a, getting to be a good disciple. And, uh, but he, he still wasn't hitting very many. And so finally I was watching him. I was watching him and it looked like he was shooting above them. So I said, I tell you what you're doing. You see, you get so excited about what you're doing. You're picking your head up. You got to hold that head down on the, on the weapon. And so I showed him that. He tried it and he hit some. And before long, he was hitting them very well. 
Next day he was out. He didn't need me anymore. He was a true disciple. He said, that's a silly story. I don't think so. I don't think we've taken seriously what it means to be a disciple. You see, if I'm going to disciple somebody, I hadn't made a disciple until they could do what it was I was teaching them to do. And we preach a lot of sermons about the stuff, but uh, I don't think we disciple folks. How do you know a person uh, is a disciple? Of, uh, how do you know they're a fisherman? They can fish. Not that they know all about it, but they can do it. And uh, I heard Bob Mumford say one time as he was teaching that uh, he found out it was possible to get information from his mind onto the blackboard through the student onto their paper without it ever getting into their life. And that's really, really true. And I think it's something we have to look at uh, as Christians. Well, you've been laughing already, but can I read you something? It's funny before I get serious. Some of you wonder if I ever get serious. Somebody asked my wife this week, said, how in the world do you live with him? She said, he's gone a lot. <laughs> I honestly thought of Bob Mumford when I got this. It's, uh, you might have seen it. It's uh, a school teacher, an English, uh, uh, English history teacher, wrote down what her students had written about history of all the papers and tests that she gave them, she, these are facts that she picked up about history uh, from her students. This is from the eighth grade through college. And if she took what her students said, this is how history would read. I'll just read you a little, little portion of it here. I've got a lot of stuff, but I'm just going to read you a little biblical history uh, according to students on test, which lets you know that you can hear it and not really get it. Listen to this. The inhabitants of ancient Egypt were called mummies. <laughs> they lived in the Sarah Desert, S-A-R-A-H. And they traveled by Camelot. <laughs> the climate of the Sarah is such that the inhabitants have to live elsewhere. So, certain areas of the desert are cultivated by irritation. <laughs> the Egyptians built the pyramids in the shape of a huge triangular cube. <laughs> the pyramids are a range of mountains between France and Spain. The Bible is full of interesting caricatures. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. One of their children, Cain, once asked, Am I my brother's son? <laughs> uh. God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Montezuma. 
Jacob, son of Isaac, stole his brother's birthmark. <laughs> now, Jacob was a patriarch who brought up his 12 sons to be patriarchs, but they did not take to it. One of Jacob's sons, Joseph, gave refuse to the Israelites. <laughs> Pharaoh forced the Hebrew slaves to make bread without straw. <laughs> Moses led them to the Red Sea where they made unleavened bread. Which is bread made without any ingredients. Afterwards, Moses went up on Mount Sinai <laughs> to get the Ten Commandments. David was a Hebrew king skilled at playing the lyre, L-I-A-R. <laughs> he fought with the Philatelist, a race of people who lived in biblical times. Solomon one of David's sons had 500 wives and 500 porcupines. this is so good. I, I can't tell. Uh, American history is even better. Let me just read you one pair of American history. It goes through Egyptian, Greek, whatever, but this is a little bit of American history. Delegates from the original 13 states formed the Contented Congress. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, a virgin, <laughs> <laughs> and bench <laughs> Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were two singers of the Declaration of Independence. Franklin had gone to Boston carrying all his clothes in his pocket and a loaf of bread under each arm. He invented electricity by rubbing cats backwards <laughs> and declared, a horse divided against itself cannot stand. <laughs> oh. Franklin died in 1790 and is still dead. Uh, that's all for today. <laughs> well, I'm convinced that many Christians are about as educated as those students. We, we got some info, but we don't know much how to do it.
And so one of the things I like to do with the men, for instance, in discipleship groups is I, I want to teach them the basics. And uh, Peter Lord was talking uh, yesterday at lunch and was telling about a man he had met who was uh, one of the uh, foremost disciplers of men. And that man had said, the first two things I do with men when I try to get them going is I talk to them about, about prayer and I teach them how to pray and I also teach them how to use their money. And I want to take those two things today and talk about them a little bit because I believe they are the two, they are the two, or two of the two or three most important things in getting started right. And some of us didn't get started right, and we need to go back and start it over. And if you did get started right, I hope this will be helpful to you in helping those around you and you get serious about discipling folks yourselves. Uh, Prayer and money. In other words, if you want to name this, just call it pray and tithe. Uh, I like simple things. But tithe, uh, it's more than tithe. It's, it's, a, it's the whole handling of things. So let's talk about these two big deals. I'm convinced out of Hebrews chapter 10, it says, uh, since we have a great high priest or the house of God, since we uh, have the shed blood of Jesus, Two or three senses there, since so-and-so, and then it has four or five let us's. Since we have a high priest, let us enter boldly. Since we have this promise, let us hold fast our confession. Uh, and then it says, let us stimulate one another to love and good works. Now here's what I'm convinced of. If you're dealing with a genuine Christian, you don't have to, you don't have to manipulate him. In fact, we should stay totally away from manipulation. You really have to stimulate him. In other words, a person who's been born of the Spirit in his inner man wants to do the will of God and in fact knows the will of God in his inner man. And so my job is as a minister, as a discipler, is to stimulate what his inner man wants and already knows and uh, to get that to be dominant over what his outer man wants and knows. So uh, all of ministry, if it's going to be New Testament ministry, must be aimed at the inner man. Anytime we try to take a shortcut and try to get people to do good behavior but manipulate them into it, we are not ministering new covenant. We're ministering law, death, and condemnation. You see, I can get a good offering out of you today, if you're honest folks, by manipulating you, using guilt or embarrassment, or fleshly motivation, or reward, or something like that. But I have not really helped your inner man unless you learn to operate out of your spirit man. I can get you to come to church. I can get you to go out and share your faith by using guilt or some other kind of manipulation. But it really hasn't helped you on the inside. It's only gotten good behavior for a time period, but it hasn't developed you on the inside. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And so much of church life has been manipulative uh, as we get people to do the right thing for a while, they'll come to church, they'll attend the meetings, they'll give their money, they'll, they'll uh, run the programs out of some kind of sense of obligation, duty, guilt, fear, all of that kind of stuff. But on the inside, they're not growing. And if you're going to make a disciple, you've got to get a man growing in his spirit man. And uh, here's what I've discovered that stimulate basically means. If I'm going to stimulate you, then I can basically do two things. I can remove obstacles that's keeping your spirit man from moving forward, 
or I can give opportunities to let you experience something out of your spirit man that, that would let you experience God. So remove obstacles, provide opportunities. That's about it. And if we could learn that, it would take a lot of pressure off of us in ministry, by the way. And when I stand up in front of a bunch of Christians like this, see, I know I don't have to talk you into anything because your inner man wants to do everything that's the will of God. So how do you know that? Because it says so in the New Covenant. If you're a Christian, God has put His law in your mind and in your hearts. It's there. It may be undiscovered yet. It may be lying dormant yet, but it's in there. And my job is to blow on it and let it come to life. And so I know there's something inside of you today that wants to pray and wants to handle things right, handle your money right. Problem is, we've got some obstacles that's keeping us from doing it. I mean, is there anything we talk more about and do less about than pray? And yet prayer is the simplest thing in the world. Because all it takes to pray is talk to God. And since He's everywhere, you can talk to Him everywhere. And since He's not limited by any language, you can talk to Him in any language. And since He knows everything, you can talk to Him about anything. And since He's already paid for all your sin, He's not going to embarrass you. So, I mean, it, it's got to be the simplest thing in the world to pray. And yet, how many people find it difficult to pray? We get so tied up in the methodology of it, what time of day you ought to do it, what you ought to say, all that kind of stuff. We just make it too complicated. One of the men's groups that I, I've been meeting with for some time, uh, I, I met this group on a, a trail ride. Uh, a bunch of pseudo-cowboys once a year go down and play cowboys. And, big ranch in Texas and uh, we put on all our leather stuff and our, and our spurs and, and our hat and our scarves and, 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 and we, we uh, uh, go down and act like cowboys. And uh, we ride horses and we punch cows and we have rodeos and we sleep on the ground and we sit around the fire at night and sing western songs and quote western poetry and, uh, you know, talk slow. It's just... Uh, <laughs> And it just started off with a small group. Now we have to cut it off at around 200 because uh, everybody wants to come to the thing. And uh, uh, they snuck me in the first year and said, you know, come be a part of this and uh, I want you to preach to the men on Sunday. So we had told us, well, okay, we've done everything else Western. We're going to have cowboy church. So we had cowboy church and uh, sat on bales of hay and, and I shared the gospel with them. Some of them got saved. And we do it on the Colorado River. So we just baptized them right there in the Colorado it's in March. It's a little chilly, but uh, <laughs> I'm a Baptist, but I almost got into sprinkling there one year. <laughs> uh, anyway, had some men saved in that deal, and they said, well, we, you know, we need a little help. Uh, we need some discipling here. So I started meeting with them, and uh, Finally, one of the men who had been just recently saved came up and he said, uh, I, need, I got a question about prayer. This is a very intelligent man. He runs a, he's head of a whole financial institution in Dallas. And, uh, so he said, I have, some, I have a question about prayer. So I'm thinking, oh my goodness, he wants to know how prayer works and I don't have a clue. And he's probably wanting to know, you know, why he didn't get a prayer answer. And, he, and I was thinking about all the theological, philosophical stuff that he was going to come up with about prayer. I said, okay, what is it? What, what do you want to know? He said, what do I call him? 
said, do I just say, hello, God? Uh, who, who, what do I say? I want, I want to do it right. I want to approach him right. What, what do I say? I said, well, you know, Father wouldn't be bad. He said, well, I just, I just don't want to offend him in any way. I thought, how simple. We always make it too complicated. He just won't know what to call it. I thought he wanted me to extrapolate the extraneous combustion was up in the tropics air of the cerebrum and explain to him the <laughs> existential status of the sovereignty of God. Just didn't want to call him. Personal prayer. Let me talk to you about three levels of prayer, first of all. First of all, just personal prayer. Do you know why I think God's high on prayer? He, he likes for us to admit that we need him. You know, for most men, as I'm talking to some men, let me tell you what, men, you don't have to be real good at how you verbalize it or whatever. Some of you are afraid to pray with your wife, afraid to pray with your kids. Uh, do, do you know what God likes? He just likes for you to just say, God, I need you. If that's all you ever said every morning, it wouldn't be bad. Just, God, I need you. I need your guidance. I, I need your presence. I, I just need you. Uh, and a lot of that junk's going on in your head, accusations about you not being a spiritual leader and stuff, you could just uh, stare that old giant right down by just getting in the presence of your wife and your kids and God and saying, God, I just want to tell you, I need you today. You see, we go to conferences and we learn all this stuff about how to glorify God. Can I tell you how God likes to glorify himself? Psalm 50, 15. Look, look at that. I want you to see that. Psalm 50. Are you there yet? Y'all are some slow turners, I tell you. Psalm 50, 14. We'll start at verse 14. Psalm 50. People that listen to this on table think we all died this long time in here. Psalm 50, 14, sacrifice thank offerings to God, fulfill your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Amazing, we, we pray, oh God, I want to honor you, I want to glorify your name. God said, great, here's a great way. You get in trouble, you call on me, I move, I get honored. You know what God likes to honor about himself? He likes to honor his mercy. That's the reputation he likes to get out, you know, we... We want to get out to the world that our God's a king. He said, oh, yeah, that's right. But what I'd really like for him to know is I'm full of mercy. You know how he gets to show that? When you have trouble that the only answer is mercy, and you cry out and he does it. Now, it's no fun getting in a place where all you, all you can ask for is mercy, is it? I mean, mercy is what you cry for when there is no other option. So we like to bargain with God or we like to, you know, pray with God on the basis of some great proposition. But mercy is the best way to approach God, can I tell you? Some of you have a hard time understanding mercy. Let me explain it this way. If you're driving home tomorrow and you get out here on the expressway and you're going too fast and all of a sudden you see a little light blinking in your mirror and you look down and you're doing 75 and it's just 65, and uh, you pull over, and that uh, gentleman comes up, and you roll down the window. He says, may I see your license, please? And you look at him, and you say, 
Ossifer. <laughs> I'm not nervous, Ossifer. <laughs> Officer, uh, uh, I know you're not going to give me a ticket because, see, I've been up at the CBU convention and I've been listening about God all week and trying to get closer to God. And I'm a Christian. In fact, I work in ministry at times. And, and I know Brother Bob Mumford, Brother Jim Jackson, folks like that. And I'm just a wonderful Christian. And I know that uh, you wouldn't want to give me a ticket. You're going to get a ticket. <laughs> you say, well, you know... Uh, I've never had a ticket before. So I know you're not going to give me one. You're going to get a ticket. Do you know your only hope? Say, officer, the only hope that I don't get a ticket is that inside of your big old heart there's a lot of mercy. Because <laughs> I'm guilty. And not a, not, there's not one plea that I have except unless you're good, I'm going to get a ticket. Now, that's mercy. You don't have any plea to go before God and say, God, not because I'm good or because I've done it right, but because you're good, I, I ask. So, so personal prayer. And there's a lot, a lot about personal prayer. I don't understand it. I, it's, it. It's still, to me, I mean... Each day when I start my day off and I pray, I, I just think, God, this is crazy. This is really just crazy. For me, a limited human being who can't even figure out his own life, for me to be talking to you and asking you to do things down here does not make any sense at all. But thank you for letting me be a part of this. Uh... I decided to quit trying to figure it out and just do it. That's pragmatism, I know, but sometimes you just have to be. I watch television like that. I can't figure out how it works. It, it honestly doesn't work. There's no way for it to work, but it's... Uh... You can do it. I like the story of uh, Fido and Charlie. I may have told you all this before, but uh, Fido and Charlie are two dogs in... Uh, uh, they were talking, and Fido said to Charlie, do you, do you know that I can open up the door at the big house? And Charlie said, you can't either, you crazy little old poodle. Uh, first of all, you're not even tall enough to reach the door handle. And secondly, it's locked, and if you had a key, you wouldn't know what to do with it. There's no way you can open the door at the big house. Fido said, I can. I can open it up every day. He said, I just, Charlie said, I just want to know how. He said, I don't know. All I know is when I scratch, it opens. <laughs> so he said, how does prayer work? I don't know. I don't know. Just when I scratch, it opens. <laughs> Leave all that up to God. I was down visiting a church uh, down below us not long, uh, well, it's been some while now, but this young man, a friend of ours, went down. He had been a Baptist pastor and had had a divorce in his life and felt like maybe he was unusable anymore. But he went down to this little place in Texas called Peaster. Peaster had a little Baptist church. It had six people in it. 
And he went in and shared one time they asked him to be the pastor. And uh, so he decided that he'd do that if they wanted him to be the pastor. So he went in there and uh, uh, I think it went even down further than that afterward and he just kind of started over and he just loved people, thought it was such a great privilege that God had let him minister and Within a matter of a year or two, uh, they had to build another building, another building, and the Peaster has 67 people in it. I mean, that's how many, that's a population, 67. Well, in a matter of just a short time, they built an auditorium and seat a thousand, and they fill it up every time they meet. And uh, so it was just amazing. Because he just loves Jesus and loves people and, and doesn't know that that doesn't work. And... <laughs> Uh, he loved the hard ones, you know, he just loved the atheists and the old hard cowboys and stuff. And everybody in church, you know, wears blue jeans and stuff. In fact, John Anderson is a pastor and he, he never wears, a, he just wears his boots and blue jeans and stuff. Uh, he called me and he said, hey man, I want you to come down here and speak and come early because I want you to come to prayer meeting. So we go down there and before church, uh, have a big altar here and, and his men were down there praying. Some of the older sisters were out, out in the congregation and so we're down there praying. Now these guys hadn't been saved long, so they're just, they're just talking to God. It's just so much fun because they were talking to God like he's real. And, uh, <laughs> it, we, you know, the prayer meeting kind of got uh, picked up there, a little energy in it. And finally one old boy rolled back, you know, and he was a rough looking old rascal. And he, he kind of set, set up and he said, and devil, I got a few things to say to you. I tell you, the Spirit of God is here and He is taking names and kicking tail. <laughs> well, sir. I, I was kneeling at the front up there with the pastor and I kind of looked over at the pastor and he looked at me like, I don't know. <laughs> and both of us were concerned about the sisters out there, some of the older gray-headed sisters who'd been in church a long time, you know, we say, uh-oh, we're in trouble. About that time we heard, a, heard one of them go, amen, praise God. <laughs> Aren't you glad God can interpret? <laughs> I don't think God's in heaven going, uh-oh, not answering that boy said tail right there. Talk about another kind of prayer that, that God wants us to learn. Just, just the basics, just talking to God and listening to God, just praying any which way. It's just better to do it than not to do it. Uh, look at John 16. Uh, it's what I call priestly praying. And I, and I love what uh, Bob was teaching us last night about the priestly role of Jesus and our, our role in that. And part of that is learning to pray the priestly prayers of Jesus. I, I want you to read with me. Turn to John 16. Uh, verse 16. Are you there? Y'all getting faster. John 16, 16. Jesus says, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And 
because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean, a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I mean when I say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've, asked, you've not asked anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming... When I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus said. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, we quote that verse a lot of times, and it's a wonderful verse, but it needs to be taken into context with this whole other stuff. Jesus is saying, I've told you something about your priestly prayer ministry because in this world, you're going to have trouble, and you need to know how to be a priest and how to bring to bear God's work in this, in this world. I love this part here where Jesus said, they're coming a day. Now, has that day come? Nod your head up and down. It's already come. The day came when Jesus ascended back to heaven. The Holy Spirit came and indwelt his body, your body individually and his body in plural. And since that day, we have been given the responsibility and the privilege of being an, a priest like Jesus was when he was on the earth so that we can see what's happening in the world and be the intercessor to go to God and to bring to bear heaven's influence on, world, on the world's mess. Now the problem with being a priest is sometimes it's much easier to get focused on the mess than it is on the solution. And we get so caught up with how, what a mess things are in, whether it's in our own lives or in our children's lives or in our church's lives or in our community's lives. Hang on, I'll be back. We're having technical difficulty. Uh, uh, devil thought he could stop.
Well, we, we get so caught up in the mess that we gaze on our situation and we forget that we were put here to see the situation so that we could pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven right now. We have the privilege of looking at the kingdom of God and seeing God's provision and seeing the world's mess and through prayer bringing it together. Jesus said, you will do greater works than I've done because I'm going to the Father. What's he saying? I'm leaving you here with my priestly role. I'm going to the Father. But here's what you do. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's how we do the works of Jesus. It's simply by taking seriously that priestly role that the Lord's given us. Think about this one. Uh, maybe you have somebody in this particular situation. Uh, Peter says to, uh, Jesus says to Peter one day, Peter, I got some good news and bad news for you. Bad news is, the devil's asked for permission to sift you. Good news is, he had to ask. Bad news is, I gave it to him. Good news is, I'm praying for you. Bad news is, you're going to need it. Good news is, your faith's not going to fail. Bad news is, everything else is. Now that is a priestly prayer that Jesus is doing. Jesus sees what God is doing in one of his disciples. Jesus chose Peter knowing that Peter wasn't yet completed. He gave him his destiny and said, you've been called Simon, I'm going to call you Petros, rock. He knew what God was going to do and, and he loved Peter all during that time. He never rebuked him or criticized him or put him down or whatever. He just let him go on and stick his foot in his mouth time after time. And, and let him go on, and finally he gets to this place, and, and it's time for God to sift Peter and to, uh, to get some of that presumption and that pride out of him. And so Jesus sees what the Father's doing and moves into the priestly role and said, Peter, I'm praying for you that while you're being sifted of the devil, your faith won't fail. Do you know somebody going through that? I bet you know I have a son in college right now who's, He's graduating this year. We have many promises regarding his life. We, we had a promise even before he was born uh, of when to have him and what his name should be and whatever. But in the last year or so, he's been going through some major struggles about what he believes and, and uh, what really is truth and so forth. I tell you, that's tough. That's, uh, any of you know about that as a parent? And uh, you're going, how can, he, how can he even possibly entertain such questions and you go through things like, those sorry professors, I wish, I wish they'd talk to me. Now, I still have a little of that in me. A bunch of bullies. Uh, why don't they bring their stuff out in the open? And you go through all, you get your focus on all the mess and you see all the possible things. Well, what if he makes this choice? And what if he goes this way? Oh, look at the pain and look at the disillusionment and all that kind of stuff, and, and it's so easy, I tell you, to get your focus on the possibilities of failure and the possibilities of destruction, and you, you get in your mind, oh my goodness, you know, free choice, and everybody's got a choice, and 
What about all those words that have been spoken? And what about the things he, he said he believed? What about what God used to do? What about the promises we've had? And all of those get, uh, get real, real dim when, you, when you're talking to somebody who's embracing some things you, you, don't, you know is wrong, you, you don't agree with. And uh, I tell you, it, it, there's great comfort in being able to say, Lord, I sure would like to put on my priestly robes today. Because I see a mess down here. And I want to go and stand in the place of a priest and say, Lord, I want to pray that while he's being sifted, and you're using the devil to sift him, I want to pray that his faith won't fail. And I have confidence that his faith won't fail, because you see, faith's eternal. His pride's going to fail, his intellect's going to fail, his self-confidence's going to fail. But I can pray that his faith won't fail. And uh, you say, how do you, how do you have confidence in that? Because Jesus, Jesus prayed that for Peter, and it worked. And Jesus said, and this fast says, I'm not saying to you that you have to come and get me to do it for you anymore because the Father loves you just like he loves me because you, you love me and you accept me as his representative and because of that, I'm making you the priest and I'm giving you the privilege of standing in those places. I tell you, there's some folks in our lives today that God is letting the devil sift. And it's good and it's never fun to watch somebody get sifted, but hey, the stuff's got to come out. Folks have to meet God. And God's given us the privilege of priestly praying. And we need to have the confidence that we are the priest of the Lord and, and that in Jesus' stead we have his authority to pray like that. How many of you have, have kids right now that are not walking with God? Can I tell you, God's given you a great opportunity to learn to be a priest. Amen. What else are you going to do? I mean, if they were six years old, we could spank them, right? Lock them in their room, make, make them go without lunch or dinner. If they were 10 or 12, we could intimidate them with our knowledge. Can't control them. i tell you what you can't do, though. You're linked up with the Lord of the universe. You say, but he won't violate their will. He doesn't have to. God didn't violate Peter's will. He prayed, Jesus prayed that his faith wouldn't fail. And uh, what a great time to learn about intercession. Not just so that our kids will come back to the Lord, but so that there are a lot of other things out there, a lot of other folks that God's going to let us pray over. All of other situations. See, Jesus told us to disciple the whole nation. You know, the Lord can let you pray for a whole nation. In fact, I'm convinced uh, when we learn to pray, we'll learn to change things better. And when we learn to pray, you'll quit nagging. I, get, I really get tired of hearing Christians nag. I get tired of hearing myself nag. We nag about the president. We nag about the Congress. We nag about uh, politics. We nag about everything. If you comment negatively, you're nagging. You know, wife says, I'm not a nagger. I don't nag. Yet she comments negatively about everything. That's what I call nagging. 
or a man. I think we are Christian, Christians who do nothing but nag. Pray, be an intercessor. Uh, let's look at another one, Luke chapter 18. Is everybody okay? I can quit anytime you want to. Somebody told me my preaching is a lot like baloney. You can cut it off anywhere. It's about the same. <laughs> Alabama-Auburn game doesn't start for another 15, 20 minutes. Will you men be at peace? Luke 18. And Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So let's talk about persistent prayer. We talked about personal prayer and then priestly praying and then persistent praying. The reason he told this story was so that they would always pray and not give up. You need to know why the story is told to help you understand the story. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. There was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Persistent prayer is the toughest form, I think, because uh, to keep on praying when your physical eyes are not seeing anything happen gives the enemy opportunity to accuse God of all kind of, of uh, incompetence, uh, impotence, being unconcerned. The devil will always accuse God of one of two things. First of all, he'll accuse him of not being strong enough. God is just not big enough to do it because, and all the reasons, free will of man, and the devil's involvement, all that kind of stuff. Or he'll say, God's strong enough, but he just doesn't care enough. He just kind of left us down here and, you know, you have to make your own decisions and their consequences, and so God's not going to intervene in those consequences. So, uh, he'll talk us out of persistent praying, and the, and the Lord wants us to pray and not to give up praying. Now, there's a couple of, just a couple of points here I want to make, and all of these are just seeds you can think of later. Uh, first of all, I want you to notice this, this widow did not come to the judge to ask for a personal favor. Now, get this. When we pray, we're not praying on the basis that God is going to change a justice system and give us a personal favor. It's not like we've got to talk God into it, that things are, are operating, and, and God, because of a personal favor to us, is going to change things. That, that's not the basis. God is operating on the basis of His kingdom, His justice system. And when we see something that's violating the kingdom of God, we go to God on the basis of justice, on that being rectified according to His kingdom. Now listen, this is really important. I hope I can get it across to you. Jesus, help me. This will help you in persistent prayer more than anything if you ever get it. Because I'm convinced that many of us think that 
that for God to answer prayer means he has to condescend or he has to kind of look over the way things really ought to be and give in to our, our poor plea. This woman is asking for justice. Something has been done that's contrary to the law of the land and she's asking for the man to simply implement the justice that's already on the books. When we learn to pray according to the kingdom of God, according to the will of God, we can go with confidence to the judge of the universe and say, God, an injustice has taken place. The devil has taken something that does not belong to him. He's walking on ground that he did not pay for, and I am praying that justice will prevail here. You are praying in accordance with the kingdom of God. Now, there's something you've got to understand here. It may be that you have to repent over your view of the kingdom of God. Because, see, a lot of folks don't believe, really, that God is in charge of the world. See, they think that God's in charge of the church, but the devil's still in charge of the world. Now, if that's the case, there's no use in you praying about anything that's going on in the world. About the only thing you can pray for is what's going on in the church. Now, think about it. We're not into religion here. Now, we're into honest doing stuff that's really true, right? If Jesus, now listen, if Jesus is not Lord of the universe, don't you pray to him about anything that's going on outside the church. Because he can't do a thing about it. But if he is Lord of the universe, then I have a right to go to him and talk to him about his kingdom coming in this earth as it is in heaven. You see, Jesus is Lord. The statement, Jesus is Lord, is not just a devotional, personal statement. You know, we talk about, I, I declare Jesus as Lord. That's good. That's good. I'm glad you have. Now, I don't like the phrase, I made Jesus Lord. I, I, I don't want to fuss over words, but... If you made him Lord, then you're Lord. Right? And, and uh, you didn't make him Lord. God made him Lord. And he made him Lord over everything that he bought. And best I can tell, he bought it all. This world is still waiting. It doesn't understand its adoption yet. It's still groaning, waiting for the full redemption. But it's been paid for. Amen? It's been paid for. And, and since it's been paid for, I have a right to pray according to the justice system that's on the books in heaven. And because I'm a child of the kingdom, I can come to God and say, God, injustice has happened here. And I'm praying for justice. Now, here's a little kickback, though. I mean, you need to understand this. Some of the little fine print. If you're going to pray for justice, you've got to be willing to live by it. You can't ask for God to give justice in Uncle John's life if you won't live it in your own life. When you're praying, Lord, I'm coming on the basis of the laws that are written in your kingdom, where Jesus is Lord, where his rule reigns, that's what I'm asking for you to happen. Then you've got to say, okay, I want it to reign in me too. None of the selective justice stuff. Well, I can tell you didn't get much of that, but think about it. 
Quickly, you say. It says here, quickly. Boy, sure are some different, different definitions on quickly, aren't they? Well, what happens when you pray and say, Lord, you said you would answer your elect quickly. I thought that meant today. Well, I tell you what it does mean. If it, means, if it doesn't mean today, it means tomorrow. You know what I mean? What I'm saying is, when you move into this realm of praying, you're moving into kingdom praying, and you remember the kingdom praying is invisible. That's an invisible kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not from this world. And when you move into this kind of praying, you're operating where God lives. And can I tell you, God is not limited by time nor space. That's why you don't ever win fighting God, because he's got time on his side. I mean, if God wants to fight, he just says, I don't think I'm going to say anything for 200 years, and then we'll see what your argument is. <laughs> and so you won't be here then. And uh, you can't fight God because he, we're limited. We, we only got about 70 years to fight. He's got millenniums. That's why different ideologies don't bother God. You know, oh, my goodness, communism is coming up. God said, I'm not worried. I got time. You let it give us a shot. Give it a shot, communism. Do your best. Communism blossoms up, comes up, shows what junk it is, dies out. God's, all right. We're worried about secular humanism. God's not. He'll outlive it. You know what I'm saying? Hey, we need to learn to live up there, folks. That's, that's our inheritance. My inheritance to live in the kingdom of God where I see the invisible and operate in invisible realities. And God says, I'll answer you quickly. You say, God, is that a 24-hour day? Maybe not. But since I'm a part of both worlds, I'm, I, my head is in the kingdom of God and I can see the kingdom of God because I've been born of the Spirit and I operate with a God without, timeless, without time. Uh, in this world, I have to live like this. It could happen any minute what quickly means. If not today, tomorrow. Well, when tomorrow gets here, it's going to happen today. If not today, tomorrow. And then when it doesn't happen that day, tomorrow gets here, it's going to happen today. If not today, tomorrow. You say, well, that's, you're foolish. What's your option? <laughs> I'm serious. What's your option? Well, I just don't, I don't believe God's going to do it. Well, okay, you can choose to, to believe your doubts. But the child of the kingdom lives with that kind of hope, with that kind of anticipation of, of God, believing that a good God will do it as quickly as a good God can without violating His goodness. Because He loves His kids. He won't operate on my calendar. But I found out that his is better anyway. Well, and by the way, sometimes you need to learn how to receive his gifts. Sometimes God gives answers in your hand. Sometimes you give them in your heart. You know what I mean? I sound like Vern on that deal. I don't know what I mean, Vern. <laughs> I mean, when God gives you an answer. If he gives an answer in your heart, it's as good as if it's in your hand, right? That's the value of personal prayer. You stay with God and God's answers. 
I got, you know, that's why I received the, uh, my prayer language, for instance. I, was, I said, uh, for years, I said, God, if you want to give me one, fine. I wouldn't mind having one, but uh, he never did give me one. Finally, he said, if you want something, ask for it. I said, okay, I'm asking. He said, you got it. I said, thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, I really did. I'm not teasing you, I did. Of course, I, I, I'd done that with some other things. And, and I went on to the office and nothing, I didn't, you said, well, did you start praying in another language? Nope, sure didn't. I went on to the office and a, a friend called me uh, who had one time been on a staff of the church I was in. And he said, uh, hey, Dudley, can I ask you a personal question? I said, sure. He said, do you pray in the spirit? I said, yeah. He said, no, I mean, do you pray in tongues? I said, yeah. He said, what does it sound like? I said, I have no idea. I said, I just asked for it this morning, and I just got it, and I hadn't opened it yet. <laughs> it, was several, it was several weeks before it started uh, popping up. A lot of times God will give you stuff in your heart. Have you noticed that? God says, quit praying. I was praying for a man when I was pastor in uh, North Fort Worth. I was praying for a man uh, who's lost. And uh, I'd go by and visit him periodically, you know, and see if he wanted to be saved. It got so, he and I had such a good relationship, I'd just go by his house, knock on the door, and I'd just, I'd already show, shared with him every aspect of the gospel I knew. And, and uh, I'd just stick my head in the door, and I'd say, hey, Ronnie, you want to be saved today? And he'd say, no, I don't think so. I'd say, okay, I'll see you. <laughs> and, uh, sometimes I'd, I mean, really, I, that's true. And he and I were friends. I, I mean, I'd just sometimes go by his house and drink coffee with him, wouldn't even mention it. I figured if he wanted to be saved, he'd tell me. And so I, we just got to be buddies. And, uh, but I prayed for him a lot. He was on my heart, and I prayed for him a lot. And so uh, one night, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I waked up, and I you know, a good way to go back to sleep is pray. And, and I, I was praying for him. And right in, uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning, the Lord said, you can quit praying, he's saved. I said, all right. I could hardly wait. I thought, you know, he got saved. So I had all this picture in my mind of how he got saved. He, he woke up in the night and got saved. So I couldn't wait to talk to him. So uh, next day, I went by to see him. I said, hey, man, did you get saved last night? He said, I don't think so. <laughs> it's kind of confused me because I thought, you know, of course, you know, when you wake up 2 o'clock in the morning, you don't ever know what's going on in your mind. And so I said, well, I, I, I probably just missed God, but I thought you got saved last night. He said, no, I don't, I don't think I did. So I, I got back in the car and I drove and I said, Lord, I'm confused. I thought you said he did. And, you know, I, thought the, I, I think I heard the Lord say, who are you going to believe, me or him? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, Lord, the man ought to know if he's saved or not. You know, and the Lord said, I, I, I've taken care of it. I've taken care of it. And you know what? I could not pray for him again. I mean, I'd, I'd get, a, I'd get a, I had a habit of praying for him. And he was on my list. And every day I'd start to pray for him, and, and it'd be like I was talking dust. Nothing would come out. I'd start to pray for him. There's no burden there. There's no faith there. No nothing. You know, it's like, why pray for stuff you already got? 
Now, I'm not trying to believe this. I'm not confessing. I'm not trying to confess it so. It just, I'm telling you what was going on in the spirit realm. You understand? There's a whole lot of difference in saying, I claim it, I claim it, I claim it. I wasn't claiming it. It was just put in my heart. You know, I resigned that church, left that church, and he, he never did, he never did say, but uh, the first year after we were gone, they had a homecoming at the church and invited me back to speak as a guest speaker, and I walked in the church, and I was down front right here, and looked down the aisle, and here he, here he came, walking down the aisle, taking big strides, you know, he came up to me and hugged me, and he said, Dudley, you might be interested in what happened to me. I said, why? He said, one day I was out in the backyard, and I was playing with my little girl, and he said, all of a sudden... I realized what you'd said about being lost. And those words you had gone over at my kitchen table, I, I came to him and I realized I was lost and I needed Jesus. And out in my backyard, I asked Jesus to save me. I've been baptized. I thought you might want to know. <laughs> you know, I tried that cool. I went. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was just getting in on what I'd got a year or two before. Well, sometimes God gives it to you in your heart, sometimes God gives it to you in your hand, but the point is you keep on asking. You keep on asking, you keep on asking. So isn't that a lack of faith? No, you keep praying until you get it in your hand or in your heart. You say, but I heard so-and-so say don't ask but once. Well, tell them they're wrong. <laughs> tell them Jesus said, when I get back, will I find faith on the earth? Well, I find somebody still saying, if not today, tomorrow. But you've been praying for that for days. I know it. It's going to be today. And if it's not today, tomorrow. Because I'm praying to a God of justice who runs the universe. And there's nothing that can stay his hand. I'm talking to not an unjust judge. I'm talking to the judge of the universe. That the devil has to ask permission far before he even messes with one of the Christians. That's who I'm talking to. And he will bring justice in my behalf. Not because I deserve it, but because he set up the law and he set up his kingdom and I'm praying according to his kingdom. So if I don't get it today, I'm going to get it tomorrow. And that's the hope that lies in the Christian. Well, I've got to talk to you just for a minute about money, all right? First obstacle is prayerlessness. And listen, if you don't learn to pray, you can forget all the rest of it. That's basic. Second thing is handling your money. I'm just going to talk for five minutes on that. Luke 16, 1 through 13, don't have time to read to you. That's a story about the man, the unjust manager, you know. He was managing his boss's money, and, and uh, he wasn't doing a good job, and, and the boss decided he's going to fire him. And so he ran around and talked to all the uh, debtors and said, if you'll uh, give half the stuff here, uh, you can get by. And the, the, the boss uh, commended him on his shrewdness for doing all that kind of stuff and, and said that uh, people of this world are smarter than people of the kingdom in regards to all that. And then Jesus makes this deal. He said, you ought to use your money to make friends so that when your money's gone, you'll have eternal habitation. And that's where he tells us, tells the application there. If you're not faithful in that which is little, you won't be faithful in that which is much. And if you can't be trusted with that which belongs to another, is God going to give you something that you own yourself? And uh, I want you to tell you three things about money. And uh, when your husband gets here this uh, February, I'm going to tell him a lot more, okay? 
First thing you need to know is that Jesus called money unrighteous mammon. Money is, to, is never to be considered a neutral entity. Don't fall for the deception that money is just a thing that if left alone is, has neither uh, positive nor negative power. There is a spirit that works with money that Jesus called unrighteous mammon. It appeals to the greed that's in fallen man's life. And if left alone, if it's not taken charge over, it will destroy you. Money is to be used very cautiously because its intent is to rule you. Just know it. Every time you look at it, you ought to say, there lies a tiger. Given the opportunity, it'll cut your throat. It'll put you in bondage. It'll put chains on you. It'll put, it'll put such junk on you that'll ruin your family, ruin your life, ruin your relationships. It's unrighteous. Jesus said it was. I didn't make that up. Jesus said it's unrighteous, man. Second thing I want to tell you is this. Money is false riches. But if used properly, can produce true riches. Money in itself is false riches. If you've got a lot of it and you think you're rich, you're deceived. If you're looking for it, working for it, longing for it, hoping for it, to make you rich, then you're deceived. It's false riches. But if you use it right, you can create true riches. Jesus said, I counsel you to use your money so that when your money's gone, you'll have eternal habitation. There's a way to use your money to put up an investment in heaven that creates real riches. And if you don't learn to handle your money, it'll handle you. And here is one of the reasons I do not believe you ought to try to disciple somebody without dealing with their money real quickly is because if you're dealing with somebody who's unwilling to get right with God about their money, their heart will ultimately go that way. Because Jesus says no man can serve two masters. Jesus said this. He didn't say perhaps, maybe, sometimes, sort of. He said no man can serve two masters for invariably he will trust the wrong one. So why should I pour my life into a man who is unwilling to come clean with God about his money because somewhere along the line he is going to trust money instead of trusting God and I will have labored in vain over somebody who didn't really mean business. So I need to start off with a man knowing how to talk to God, how to pray, and with a man who's willing to use his money to create true riches. And that affects not only what he gives, but what he saves, how he works, where he works, why he works, how, uh, how he invests, how he spends the whole deal. Because money is not put here just as a neutral entity. And uh, the third thing I want to say about money is that managing things can bring ownership of true life. But if you try to own things, you'll lose your life. Managing things can give you ownership of life. Timothy talks about this. In other words, the point I'm trying to make is this. Don't ever become owner of anything. Always be a manager. 
If you're the manager, there's a couple of things you have to know. Number one, what does the manager want done? I mean, what does the owner want done with it? And that's what you're responsible to do. And secondly, uh, it, it never becomes your own responsibility and you always have to check with him what you do. Now, if you're having problems there, let me, let me give you a couple of suggestions, three suggestions. First of all, you can confront materialism with generosity. The way you stop money from being in charge is give it away. That's right. It's a slap in the face of money when you say to money, hey, you think you're so important you're going to dominate my life, make me work 12 hours a day, make me neglect my kids, make me forget, uh, have, have no time for God. You think you're going to run my life. I tell you what I, tell you what I think of you. I'm giving you away, dadgummit. You're worth nothing. Here. Just a slap in the face of money to give it away. Now, not indiscriminately, because... Remember, it's not yours. It belongs to somebody else, so you're the manager. And so you're checking him, Lord, what do you want me to do with it? But I want to tell you this. If generosity is not a part of your life as it relates to your things, then greed's got a death grip on you. And materialism is a terrible thing to live with. Let me give you a definition of materialism right quick. Webster's definition of, of materialism. The theory that physical well-being and worldly possessions constitute the highest value and greatest good in life. I'll read it to you again. The theory that physical well-being and worldly possessions constitute the highest value and greatest good in life. Uh, does that sound like some preaching you've heard? Now I know... You say, why are you talking to us about this? Because you and I live in a culture whose God is materialism. That is the philosophy of our day, and you have not made it this far without being affected by it somehow. And my reason for bringing it up is I'd like to remove that obstacle from your life because all this weekend we've been talking about intimacy with God, getting back to the basics, no shortcuts, walking with God in the roles of Jesus, being the peculiar people of God, Ruling with Jesus in this world. I want to tell you, you cannot have any of those things if you are ruled by materialism. So confront your materialism with generosity. Secondly, choose to be content with what you have. A rich man is content with what he has. Poor man's always looking for something more. Choose to be content. You say, how do you do that? Start thanking God for what you got. He says, well, I just don't have very much. Well, thank God for what you got. We all came into this world with nothing. Anything you've got since then is a profit. Everybody in here looks rich to me. You got clothes on your back. Most of you got your hair combed. Those of you got any. You got friends sitting by you. A lot of you got children. You've been saved by the grace of God. Most of you got a Bible. Got decent looking clothes. You're on the profit side, folks. I don't see anybody here on the debit side. Thank God for what you got and be content with it. Lack of contentment, vulnerable ground for the enemy. 
And then lastly, focus on the real issues of life, not on the things. Focus on the real issues of life. Relationships and so forth. Uh, I'll read you this and I'm quitting. That's a promise. The famous Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago was the site of a 1923 meeting of some of the world's most powerful financiers. In attendance was Charles Schwab, president of the largest independent steel company. Samuel Insull, the president of the largest utility company. Howard Hobson, the president of the largest gas company. Arthur Cutton, the, largest, the greatest wheat speculator. Richard Whitney, the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Albert Fall, a member of the president's cabinet. Jesse Livermore, the greatest bear on Wall Street. Leon Fraser, the president of the Bank of the International Settlement. And Ivor Kruger, the head of the world's greatest monopoly. Collectively, they controlled more wealth than there was in the United States Treasury. Yet, for all their financial expertise, theirs is not a pleasant story, for they each came to a bitter end. After living on borrowed money for the last five years of life, Schwab died penniless. Insul, too, died destitute, a fugitive from justice in a foreign country. Insanity claimed Hobson, while Cutton died abroad insolvent. Both Richard Whitney and Albert Fall ended up in prison while Livermore, Fraser, and Kruger all committed suicide. Although the details of their disastrous demise vary from one individual to the other, the similarities give us reason to pause and consider. They were addicted to wealth and the power it represented, and in the end, this was their undoing. Had they heeded the scriptural warnings about materialism, they might have escaped their tragic fate. Many of you are, uh, are in the last few decades of your life. Some of you at the point of retirement and all of that, and I think that's wonderful that you can use these years to glorify God in a different way. But I, I want to tell you something. I want to encourage you in these last years of your life not to let the fear of the lack of money steal one day from you. God has promised he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Can I encourage you to, make, to use what you have in these days to, uh, to get rich in heaven? To, oh, I'm going to leave a bunch of money. To, don't leave a whole lot of it here. Mommy's okay, look after your kids somewhat, but don't, don't look after them too good. I believe it's right that we leave an inheritance for our kids, but uh, don't leave them to a place where they don't have some responsibility. Amen. Some of you have been given the, the ability to make money more than others, and that's been an ability in your life and a joy in your life. Do you know that if God gave you the ability to make more than you need, there's somebody that doesn't have all that they need? I've traveled around this country and other parts of the world. I run into a lot of ministers, missionaries, pastors, leaders, 